Matthew 5, starting at verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we um, took our kids during the school holidays to the Brickman exhibition at the museum last week. I don't know how well you can see that picture on the screen, but it was amazing. The kids, they, they thought it was okay, but Robin and I really loved the detail that went into these models, the, the wonders of the world built, recreated in Lego, these icons of the world, natural wonders, human wonders, ancient wonders, icons from human kingdoms are built around the world and through history. It was crazy clever. Here's the crown jewels made from Lego. They're the symbols of our Queen's rule. Uh, we don't think about the Queen very much in Australia anymore. The, the move is on towards a republic. Uh, the actual crown jewels probably feel less important to us than these Lego ones because we don't think much about kingdoms these days, do we? The language of kingdoms. But I wonder what you'd do if just for the day you were king or queen and you actually had power and you could rebuild the world or you could create some wonder that represented your kingdom. Or maybe if somebody turned up promising to rebuild your life for the better, I wonder what you imagine them building for you. If a king or queen or a politician or a CEO or a pastor or someone turned up tomorrow and said they were going to rebuild the world or rebuild your world and they could do it, I wonder what you'd like them to put together. What would be the wonders of this world? What would be the, the kingdom that you would build like Brickman and his team build Lego? Uh, what would they build? Would it, who would it serve? Would you be like Egypt where the people of the kingdom enslaved others to build their wonders? My clicker's not working, John. That's all right. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> where people enslaved others to build their wonders and where only the pharaoh was the image of God, or, or like Babylon with its hanging gardens built from plunder and wealth pillaged from the surrounding nations. Who would your building project serve? Who would your kingdom serve? Who would be the image of God in your kingdom? What sort of kingdom are you building with your blood and sweat and tears, your time and your money, the pieces of your life? What does fullness or fruitfulness or fulfilment or happiness look like for you or for others who are made in the image of God who are in that kingdom with you? Oh, there we go. I turned the page the wrong way. Now, these are the questions, these are questions actually about kingdoms, really. They're, they're places where God is revealed or the gods are revealed, the gods of the kingdom, as images of God's 
represent them as they build these wonders. And we saw how that kingdom idea is there in Genesis 1 last week with the call to represent God, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And so that's what human kingdoms do. They represent their gods as they seek to fill the earth with wonders, as they seek a certain sort of fruitfulness. When we talk about the language of kingdom, that's really what we're talking about. Who's ruling and what they're building, what their picture of fruitfulness is, and who gets to flourish. This kingdom language might feel foreign for us now, but it's a live question in the first century when Jesus turns up preaching that God's kingdom has come near. The kingdom of heaven is near and he says we should repent. We should get with the program. Now we know as readers of the gospel that this is all heading to the cross and to Jesus declaring that all authority has been given to him on heaven and earth by the fusion of the heavens and the earth in his rule, the kingdom of heaven coming. But at this point in the story, Jesus' disciples who've just started following him are wondering what this kingdom is going to look like. And so I want you to imagine for a moment that you're the disciples. You're sitting there in the first century and you're not just living under Roman rule where you've got some issues about what the Romans are doing, which is often where these exercises go, imagining tossing the Romans into the sea and God's people reigning and ruling with Jesus. But not just with their current context shaping them, but these are Jewish people. And so they're shaped by the Old Testament. The Old Testament's shaping their imaginations when Jesus says, that blessing is coming with the kingdom of heaven and that they will experience the kingdom of heaven and this blessing if they join him. Now, you don't need to know much about the Old Testament pictures of blessing to get their sense, get the sense that their pictures start to fall to pieces once Jesus actually starts speaking about the nature of the kingdom. We're going to have a look at some of that and we're going to see how Matthew sets the scene for these words with some vivid Old Testament imagery. Uh, First up, we've got to know as we read the Gospel of Matthew that geography matters. The way Jesus is using space matters. He's just been baptised in the Jordan, the river, the waters that Israel crossed in their exodus to become God's kingdom. Then he's been in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, where Israel's exodus wanderings happened. And here Moses wants us to see Jesus again as a new Moses, arriving to lead God's people into God's kingdom. When Jesus goes up a mountainside, Matthew uses a Greek phrase here that occurs over 20 times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, and most of those are in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, and 11 of them are about him going up Mount Sinai to meet with God. Uh, We might know the story. There's several stories, actually, but one of them, he goes up the mountain to meet with God before being sent to speak for God to God's people, to speak God's word to his people, to tell the people of Israel what God wants. Uh, When he comes down, he goes up to get the Ten Commandments. When he comes down, he finds Israel worshipping the golden calf. And he goes up the mountain again, up the mountain to the Lord. This time it's to represent the people to God, to intercede for them, to meet with God, to make atonement for the people's sin to try to turn God's judgment aside as he represents their cause to God. He's kind of a a bridge between heaven and earth. And he goes to a place where people see heaven and earth being bridged, a, a mountain. And he goes up that mountain over and over again, this little overlap between heaven and earth. And as he does, as he meets with God over and over again, and eventually as he is in the presence of God and he doesn't see God's face but he sees his back, he becomes this shining, glorious mediator. 
an image of God, someone bringing heaven to earth, speaking for God. And we get this symbol that Matthew is picking up, not just of Moses receiving the law on the mountain and speaking it. So we're going to see Jesus do something like that in the Sermon on the Mount, but being this mediator whose job is to bring heaven and earth together, a leader of God's kingdom who goes to meet God so he can speak for God and ask his people, Israel, his kingdom, to become more and more like God so they might represent him in the world, in partnership with God in the world. And Moses even says in Deuteronomy that one day God's going to provide another intercessor, another Moses who will mediate between God and man, another prophet who will come along speaking God's word, and when he does, they're to listen because his word will be in his mouth. So when Matthew uses this same phrase that's used over and over and over again for Moses to position Jesus on the mountain, he is saying this new Moses is here. Not just the guy who's going to bring God's law or God's word, but the guy who's going to bridge heaven and earth, bring the people to God and God to the people. Matthew's already planted that seed by calling Jesus God with us. And he's been building this picture. He uses this phrase about Jesus going up the mountainside off the back of Jesus, quoting Moses over and over again in the temptation with Satan, which we looked at last week. So remember, Moses isn't just a lawgiver, but this glorious, shining image bearer. And Matthew's going to pick this up in the Transfiguration later on, another mountaintop experience where Moses actually shows up and Jesus is radiant, shining, glorious. So here's the guy Matthew calls God with us, going up a mountain and then speaking about the kingdom of heaven coming down, the kingdom of heaven arriving. And so the the first hearers of this, the first readers of the book, the people listening to Jesus, they've got this picture of Moses, from Moses, sorry, that the kingdom of God means ruling over all the nations of the earth. They're waiting for God's kingdom to be restored, the kingdom of heaven to come. And they've got this picture from the words of Moses here in Deuteronomy 28 that if they fully obey the Lord and carefully follow his commands, they will be set high above all the nations on the earth and blessings will come if they obey the Lord their God. Their picture of blessing is abundance. It's fruitfulness in the land. It's like Eden all over again, ruling with God. This is what it was in the Old Testament as Israel entered the promised land and this is what they're hoping for again, God's Messiah, a son of David, to turn up and to give them fruitfulness. Their picture of blessing is about wealth and power. The nations around them will fear them. I don't know about you, but maybe this is what we imagine when we think about being blessed as God's people too. Power. Well, being feared by those around us, being in control, setting the agenda for society. Maybe that's the kingdom you imagine building or maybe it's just more local. It's a house that's in order and a garden that's fruitful and a life that goes where you want it to go. See, so often we think of blessing like this, but then it doesn't sound a whole lot like the Beatitudes that Mel just read for us, does it? On the flip side, in Deuteronomy 28, if Israel doesn't obey... They don't get blessing, they all get curse. If they don't obey their Lord, the Lord their God, if they don't listen to him and follow the commands, curses are going to come and overtake them, just like with Adam and Eve in the garden. 
Blessing and fruitfulness gives way to curse if they're disobedient, if they don't listen to God. And all of the things that are promised as a picture of prosperity get replaced. They get turned upside down. Instead of prosperity and fruitfulness, there'll be poverty and famine. Now, in some ways, this sounds more like the Beatitudes, doesn't it? Hunger, thirst, nakedness, poverty, they'll be cursed and turfed, they'll be exiled and enslaved by powerful nations, they'll be persecuted. And this is the situation that Israel finds themselves in back in the land. Under Roman rule, they're still enslaved, essentially, to a foreign power. They're still hoping for their own king who'll come and upend this curse and restore their fortunes and give them blessing and prosperity. And so when Jesus turns up and starts talking about blessing and about the kingdom of heaven, they've all got a picture in their mind that they're imagining. A picture saved not just by their experience under Rome, but by their expectations from the Old Testament. And Jesus, well, the pieces of their kingdom fall apart pretty quickly when he starts talking. The Sermon on the Mount is the start of his teaching about what his kingdom looks like and it's not what they're expecting. If you think ahead to the Great Commission, the call for disciples to take God's presence, his kingdom, out into the world, bridging heaven and earth as part of the kingdom of the one who has authority over both, mediating between heaven and earth, that's what God's people, his image bearers, are meant to do. Uh, this is the teaching where to pass on and obey. The, the commands of Jesus that his people are to obey as we fulfil this task, this teaching starts in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus starts teaching his disciples, teaching us the nature of his kingdom. And his teaching begins with this series of blessings. Now, I've referred to the Greek version of the Old Testament already. Uh, it's the Old Testament version that most people were familiar with in the first century, and the New Testament authors often quote from it. And this word blessed is interesting. It's not the same word for blessing as we see in Genesis 1. It's not the same word for blessing we see in much of Moses' teaching at all, actually. It basically means happy. Now, this is the key to happiness as Jesus frames it. It's a word that Moses doesn't use until his very last recorded words in Deuteronomy. Words about being a conquering people saved by the Lord, a kingdom. Happiness is to be a people saved by the Lord finding refuge in him because he is their shield and helper, their glorious sword, so that their enemies do fear them. It's the word used often through the Psalms, including in the very first line of Psalm 1, to describe people who listen to and delight in the word of God. And for those who celebrate God's rule as a king in Psalm 2, who kiss his son and take refuge in him. It's got a huge Old Testament background to it, but it's a slightly different word to the words that we see in Deuteronomy about blessing and curse. The royal songs of Israel, though, the Psalms, are also in the background of Jesus' words about the kingdom as much as Moses is. Here he's a new David as well as a new Moses. He's not saying anything new when he brings this message of blessing, but he's revealing what Israel might have missed when they equated blessing and happiness with wealth and prosperity and power and maybe he's got something to say to us too if we think that blessing or happiness is about receiving those things, those possessions, those material realities, the things of earth rather than the kingdom of heaven. See, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, this blessing, this happiness, this feeling that everything's right in the world is not about the material possessions we have. 
but it's about being connected to God, the source of abundance. Jesus gives a whole list of characteristics of those whose lives align with God and his word, whose lives align with the character of God. These are the characteristics of a person who knows that God is God and knows what God is like and so represents him in the world. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those persecuted because of righteousness. This is an unexpected sort of list. But Jesus' words, they're exposing people's hearts because at the same time they're exposing God's heart and how his kingdom turns their expectations upside down. It's a list that doesn't sound like victorious and materially prosperous, fruitful people like Deuteronomy 28, but that's because that fruitfulness flowed out of covenant relationship with God. The fruitfulness wasn't the thing that brought blessing. The relationship with God was. And that's what Jesus says people get when we pursue these characteristics, when we are blessed. When we pursue these characteristics of God, the object of this blessed life is not material blessings, those aren't the fruits, but God. See what Jesus says we get for those characteristics? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will be shown mercy. They will see God like Moses did on the mountain. They will be called children of God because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the blessed life is not material blessings, but God and knowing that all the good things we receive come from God's hand in relationship with him. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like, a relationship with God. The key to blessing, to happiness, is relationship with God, receiving comfort and an inheritance, being filled by God, rather than grabbing those things for ourselves with our own hands or from Satan. See, compare all these promises of God to the promises of Satan to Jesus in his temptation last week. The kingdom of earth, inheriting the earth. God says the path to that is relationship with him. Now these characteristics, the, the qualities of the kingdom might seem undesirable, meekness, who wants to be meek, mourning, who wants to mourn? But I just want you to imagine for a moment an anti-Matthew, some anti-Beatitudes. Flip the qualities and you see why Jesus' words are compelling. Imagine a world built on these values. Blessed are the proud, those who cause mourning, the powerful, those who are self-righteous and hungry for glory, the harsh, the self-seeking, the warriors, those who are victorious because of unrighteousness. See, this is the kingdom of Satan. Imagine a world built on these values, and you don't actually have to look far, do you? You can just look outside, outside these doors, and if we're honest, we can look inside our own hearts and see what sort of fruit this way of life produces, see what sort of relationship with God and with others this way of life produces. See, these are the behaviours in the Old Testament that led to curse, and to exile, and to death, to separation from God. And if you flip the promises of what God will give us in return to these, theirs is the kingdom of Satan. They will be rejected, they will be cast out, they will be emptied, they will receive justice, 
They will be cast from God's face. They will be called children of Satan. Theirs is the kingdom of Satan. And we're going to see a kingdom like this in operation in Matthew's gospel, going toe-to-toe with Jesus, the anti-Christ even, going toe-to-toe with Jesus, this attitude that is anti the Beatitudes. So as we work through Matthew, these themes, this picture of the life of the kingdom are going to be themes that come up in the teaching of Jesus, the teaching we're called to obey as his disciples, and also in the pattern of life that he displays as he comes face to face with this empire, the empire of the anti-beatitudes, anti-happiness, anti-blessing. We're going to see what God's kingdom looks like in the face of that, the kingdom of heaven breaking into earth, the glorious image of God coming and showing us what heaven is like, what God is like. So these words challenge all sorts of kingdom-building ideas of Jesus' day. And if we're honest, they challenge the kingdom-building ideas we might have when we imagine putting the world right. See, it's not going to be those who think they have it all who are blessed. It's going to be the poor in spirit. It's not going to be those who think we can build God's kingdom, build Eden, build paradise on our own back, bring God's kingdom ourselves. God's kingdom is going to come from God and from those who want to partner with him, realising we bring nothing to the table. It's not those who find joy in the state of the world, exile from God, curse, death, disease, and try to build happiness on our own terms by grabbing hold of the things of the world who will receive comfort, but those who mourn the state of the world and the state of our relationship with God and the oppressive empires around us and our own sin, it's those of us who do that who will be comforted. It's interesting, Jesus is basically saying here, happy... It's not happier those who are happy, happier those who mourn. It's a paradox. It's a very strange thing to say. But blessing comes from not seeking our own happiness, but seeking the one who can give us comfort. It's not those who seek to dominate others, who use power to secure their kingdom, who are happy, who are blessed, who inherit the task of ruling the earth with God, but those who love and serve God and neighbour without trampling others, the meek. Happiness doesn't come from filling our hunger and thirst with the things of this world, but hungering for righteousness, hungering for God. Which if you think back to last week and the temptation of Jesus and Satan saying, turn these rocks into bread, and Jesus saying, man doesn't live off bread alone, but from God. Life comes from God. And I wonder if that's how any of us can describe ourselves, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who hunger for God who look for satisfaction in him, who turn to him when we're tempted. See, is this the most helpful part of your toolkit when it comes to fighting sin and temptation, that you hunger for righteousness, that you hunger for God more than anything else you think might fill you? Because this is what God's kingdom looks like. This is what it looks like when heaven breaks into earth. A people filled with his righteousness who then fill the earth with his presence as we make disciples. The life of repentance and obedience and happiness isn't built on taking revenge or acting harshly with those who wrong us. Happy are the merciful, those who forgo retribution, who let go of our rights in order to choose to love others. Happiness doesn't come from a heart divided, a heart searching for satisfaction from all sorts of other gods or even the heart turned in on itself, the selfish heart, the self-seeking heart. 
but from a pure heart, a heart devoted to God, like Moses displayed when he wanted to intercede for God's people and to know God intimately. And so God said, come and see me on the mountain. The happy and blessed life seeks peace, restoration, reconciliation, forgiveness, not conflict or violence. Peace with God and with others. This is what marks us as children of God. And here's the real twist in the tale, the real sting for these first century hearers as they're expecting the Messiah to come and drive the persecutors out. Jesus says happiness is in those who get persecuted because of righteousness. This is the second time Jesus promises the kingdom of heaven, promises happiness to those who are made happy by God, and it's going to come in the face of opposition from the world, the kingdom of the world, the anti-kingdom. None of this is quite what Israel has in mind, this picture of abundant prosperity and political power. But what they're getting instead of abundant prosperity and political power is they're getting God and his kingdom and his promise of rewards in heaven, life with him in a new Eden. See, Jesus follows up that beatitude with an unpacking of this idea. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Be happy. Because great is your reward in heaven. We are the kingdom of heaven. We get God for eternity. Those promises of abundance and fruitfulness from the Old Testament, we get them through relationship with God forever. But at the moment in this world, we are part of the project of bringing heaven and earth together. The people of God called to be his ambassadors, to represent him, his image bearers, people on our own exodus journey heading towards our own new promised land, the new Eden, and faithfulness in the world as we wait to arrive. Well, it's always looked like this. And Jesus says, just look at how they treated the prophets who came before, the people who spoke for God, the people who brought a little picture of heaven to earth, the people of the kingdom of this world, they don't want that. What we need is a king who brings them together. And this hardly sounds like a path to happiness, does it? Insults and persecution. But these are the moments when the difference between God's kingdom and the anti-kingdom, the, where the character of God is most on display, where little bits of heaven break in and challenge that anti-kingdom as we take up the Beatitudes, this way of life, this way of life that produces the fruit of life with God forever. And when you look at this list, when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you, this could easily be a description of Jesus' trial, couldn't it, where he's beaten and mocked, where he's crowned with thorns by the anti-kingdom, where he's found guilty of claiming to be exactly who he is, God's king, by both the Roman Empire and by Israel's leaders, where he's persecuted just like the prophets. See, Jesus turns up and he lives the life of the kingdom. He lives as the new Moses, as the new Adam, the new image bearer to show us what God is like, to bridge heaven and earth, to speak God's words. He lives as the new David, the king who's going to lead God's people home to God. But people aren't interested in this sort of upside-down kingdom. And I wonder how much you are. Instead, people are interested in the kingdom of earth, the kingdom of Satan, the Eden without God's presence, Babylon's hanging gardens, those glorious pictures of fruitful life in this world. 
their own little kingdoms, their own anti-kingdoms of God, their anti-beatitudes. And so when Jesus turns up speaking like this and living like this and confronting that kingdom, they kill him. Jesus, the righteous one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who brings God's righteousness and is persecuted for it, who brings the kingdom of heaven, who is pursuing bringing heaven and earth together because he's the true mediator between heaven and earth, God with us, truly bridging the gap. Well, he goes up a different mountain and he has a crown of thorns pushed into his head. But in doing that, He truly bridges the gap between heaven and earth on the cross. Bridges the gap for us. He goes up to make atonement for sin through his death, a death he takes modelling the meekness of the Beatitudes in the face of Satan's power and the world's might so that he might model receiving the kingdom of heaven and in doing so inherit the earth. This is a death he takes on to invite us to cross over from the kingdom of Satan the anti-kingdoms of this world, into the kingdom of heaven through him. To receive that baptism of the Spirit, he talks about in Matthew 28, where we receive forgiveness of our sins and God's presence and new hearts and the ability to start listening to God, to live a life of repentance, a life of the kingdom, a life that sees God's kingdom through eyes given to us by God. Jesus is doing what he does on the cross to bring God's kingdom so that he might be the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. Now, we won't live up to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount. We won't live up to the Beatitudes. We'll fail. We're not saved by displaying these characteristics. We're saved from that anti-kingdom. We're saved to display these characteristics as God works in us. We're saved because Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets and the Sermon on the Mount, and then he invites us to share in his life save for these characteristics, save that God might develop them, produce them in us as we seek to be Jesus' disciples, as we teach one another to obey his commands, as we become his image-bearing people in the world who represent God to the world because we are reconnected to him. We become little bridges between heaven and earth, people who bring the kingdom of heaven to earth in our lives. See, the new Moses has arrived to lead a new exodus, And the challenge is, are we going to listen to him? Are we going to hear these commands and so live the life he calls us to? Are we going to repent, to turn from the anti-kingdoms of this world and to live in his kingdom because he is our king? Or are we going to, just like Israel, just like the Romans, just like Babylon, have our own picture of the happy or blessed life where Jesus gets in the way? So if Jesus is who he says he is, we need to repent of our search for happiness without God. We need to repent of our attempts to build wonders, to build Eden without the presence of God, whether that's in kind of political systems or just in our own backyard, the idea that we can have fruitfulness and blessing and happiness without God. We need to give up that idea, repent of those building projects that don't have God in the mix. We need to have our false values and our dreams and our kingdoms, those things we pictured, exposed by the words of Jesus. Have them held up against what Jesus says the kingdom of God looks like, who Jesus shows us the kingdom of God looks like, and come and join that program. We need to repent of the gods we make in our own image, just like Israel 
did with the calf while Moses was receiving the Lord, gods who deliver blessing on our terms, according to our designs. Rather than us imaging God, we build gods in our images and live according to that design. And for Christians, this actually means repenting of our Lego Jesuses. The Jesuses we imagine in our minds who come to bless our projects, our wondrous ideas about what life should look like, the things we want to bring to God and say, here, look at me, look how good I am. The ones we build and shape when we want to be self-justifiers rather than justified by God and come to him with empty hands. If we have a plastic Jesus, a Jesus of our own making, and not the Jesus we meet in the gospel and the Jesus we meet at the cross, then we end up with a plastic kingdom, one that has no substance and won't deliver happiness or blessing or life with God. And these plastic kingdoms will disappoint. They'll damage the people around you. They'll dehumanise you. You'll become the image of a plastic God. It's unlikely anything that we build with our lives are going to be memorialised in a Lego exhibition in a thousand years, two thousand years, or even remembered in a generation because it's God's kingdom that lasts for eternity. Not these little anti-kingdoms we set up, it's God's kingdom that we receive for eternity if we pursue life through him, if we repent and seek happiness even in a world that crucified Jesus by grounding ourselves in his rule. See, Jesus, the new Moses, invites you to smash your false images of God, to leave your false kingdoms behind, to join his kingdom, to follow him to the heart of God as he bridges heaven and earth for us. Will you listen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we repent. We repent of the pictures of kingdoms that we want to build where we fix the world. We repent of the ways we get swept up in the kingdoms of this world and think that things, material things, will deliver happiness to us and so turn our back on you. We repent of the ways that when we grasp after those things, we treat other people as competition or as slaves, people who don't bear your image. And so in repenting, we turn to Jesus. We want to commit ourselves to following him as king, to trusting him as the one who fulfills the law, the righteous one who brings forgiveness of sins, the righteous one who stands between heaven and earth and invites us into the kingdom of heaven, the one who with you pours out your spirit so that those who receive that baptism cross into this new kingdom and become your people. And so, Lord, we pray that as we seek to live as your people, people empowered by the Spirit, little bridges between heaven and earth, that we might obey the commands of Jesus. And in doing that, we might represent you to your world. That we might be a picture of heaven, a taste of what's to come. And in doing that, we might bring light and life to this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.